Healthy Hacker, Episode 15. Hello and welcome to The Healthy Hacker, where we talk about programming, puzzles, memory fitness diet, and everything else that you, a healthy hacker, find interesting. I'm Chris Hunt, and this week, we've got a special guest. You might know him as Rook on Twitter, or that guy I went on a trip with called Codecation. I'm talking about Ben Orenstein, and he's from Boston, Massachusetts, and he's swinging through Portland, Oregon, which is where I live to come on the podcast and talk about his three-month walkabout, teach me how to sing some barbershop, little four-part harmony, and he's going to share his thoughts on podcasting, conference talks, code review, and a few other uncomfortable situations. Before we get into that, though, let's do the workout of the week. The workout of the week is a section where I like to take a workout that I've done recently or seen recently or someone told me about or I thought it was cool or something like that, And I tell you all about it, and hopefully sometime this next week, you'll be able to try it yourself. And I'm going to have to try it too because this week's workout I haven't done, but it just looks like it's going to totally destroy my legs. So the way this workout works, you don't need any equipment. All you need to do is find some stretch of 200 meters This can be at a track, or this can be on a road, or this can be on a sidewalk, or it can be a circle. doesn't matter. Just find something that's 200 meters long. Then go to one end of it, start a stopwatch, and start doing walking lunges until you get to the end of that 200-meter stretch. If you're not sure what a walking lunge is, I've got a video in the show notes at healthyhacker.com slash 15, and I'll describe it for you now as well. It's just like a normal lunge. You're going to stand straight up with your feet together and then stick one of your legs out forward as far as you can. So you're stretching that back leg and pushing that front knee forward and then you bring your back leg up to meet your front foot. That is a forward lunge. It's basically a really long step. And during that step, you get low to the ground. So it's a really good stretch, and it's a really good workout for those legs. So after you've gone 200 meters of walking lunges, next thing you want to do is run 800 meters. So you've already got this 200-meter stretch, right? So just run down and back and down and back. That's going to be 800 meters four times. Then after you've ran 800 meters, do one more set of that 200-meter walking lunge. So again, the total workout is 200 meters of walking lunges, 800 meters of running, and then another 200 meters of walking lunges. And your goal is to do this as fast as possible and still keeping correct form on those lunges. So good luck. Have fun. Your upper body gets a nice rest this week. So that'll be nice. Uh, But your legs are definitely going to be sore. Hi, Ben. Hey. Thanks for coming on my podcast. Absolutely. Thanks so, for uh, showing me around Portland. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Why are you in Portland anyway? Uh, I'm in Portland to see you mostly. Is that really the only reason you're in Portland? Well, Portland is cool on its own right. Uh, and the Chris Hunt is just a bonus. Uh, but the the more general thing that I think you're fishing for uh-huh. is that uh, I'm currently on uh, what I've been calling a walkabout, mm. um, which is something I need to blog about or talk about more. But this is a nice substitute, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so... 
basically, uh, a few weeks ago, I went to um, chat by Teller CEO. I thought was like, hey, I'm feeling like kind of burned out. Uh, and I was thinking maybe I would take some time off. Uh, and we talked about it and uh, I got the okay. And basically what I'm doing right now is uh, taking about three to four months off uh, to go have interesting experiences is kind of like my my goal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've scheduled a number of trips. Uh, I've already taken a couple. I went to New York uh, and hung out with a friend there and uh, hung out in the Genius offices and met their dev team and did some cool stuff there. And a podcast. I heard a podcast. Yep, there. recorded a podcast exactly on the Giant Robots podcast, interviewed uh, one of their co-founders. And uh, now I am here in Portland. Uh, soon I'll be in Austin. Soon I'll be in uh, DC. I'm going to a closure, the closure con, which is like the big closure conference. Uh, and then more to come. I'm going to be teaching for a month in uh, at the touring school mm. uh, in Denver. Uh, so I'll be there for almost all of January. And if you're around there, we should hang out. And after that, probably Hong Kong, because a good friend of mine just moved there. So uh, there's not exactly a um, overarching picture here is kind of like a bunch of random things that I wanted to do yeah and uh but the I guess if there wasn't a general goal it's like just have interesting experiences and do stuff I normally wouldn't do so like teaching a boot camp at a boot camp for a month is like definitely on that list Mm -hmm. or maybe like a uh, 15 minute uh clean and jerk uh amrap partner amrap at a crossfit gym absolutely yeah Yeah. (laughs) so uh yeah trying to trying to be like really fit uh during this is definitely Mm -hmm. a goal like I have plenty of time for it now, so the excuse is kind of gone, except for my own laziness. Uh, and I realized yesterday that one of my, I have another overarching thing, uh, another a rule that I'm trying, I'm trying to come up with these like rules and habits that I should live by during yeah. this period, because it's a unique period and I want to make the most of it. And I realized yesterday you were like, hey, you want to you do this thing? And you sort of challenged me to this like workout. And I realized that I was like kind of scared of it. I was like afraid that you were going to judge me for being slow and afraid that like it would be super hard and I would like be miserable. And I was like, the fact that I feel afraid of this thing means I should do it. So I think my new rule for this walkabout is if I'm, if I'm hesitant or afraid of doing a thing, then I have to do it that's, for that's the next four idea. months. Yeah. I'm not sure that if I asked any company I've ever worked for that I'd be able to do something like this. It's it, Honestly, it's, it's another example in a long string of... Th- thought bomb being like ridiculously cool yeah towards me in particular and and all the employees in general it's just there's a lot of companies that talk about like we really want this to be a place you can work at for a long time and we want the best people and we want to treat them really well and i've never seen a company uh back that up so consistently and so strongly as like as what's happened to me at ThoughtBot. Like I, I even before this, like I, I was I decided I wanted to, to work a four day week as an experiment uh, yeah. like a year and a half ago. And they're like, uh yeah, okay, let's try it. <laughs> and that, that's that's been my schedule since then. Um and so I keep having these experiences where I come up with a crazy idea uh, or like even like uh upcase uh was we ha- had a number of products and I was like I went to Chatter CEO and I was like, hey like what if we like put the bundle these together in like a subscription service and uh-huh. like, just charge it and like build a community? And he was like, Yeah, we've been thinking about doing that. Why don't you uh, go do that? <laughs> and like the, all of a sudden it's like I had a new job. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so like this just keeps happening where it's kinda like I, I come up with weird ideas and they just say yes. And it, it keeps it so fresh for me. Like this is the longest I've worked anywhere. I've, I've been there for like almost three and a half years. That's like 30 programmer years 30 programmer for year, yeah for yeah. sure like my previous jobs had all been like a year mm-hmm. or like 18 months before that um and i, I think the a big part of it is just that I, I keep getting to be able to reinvent myself and like even before this it was like traveling to conferences like 2012 or something i went to like i don't know a dozen conferences all over the place internationally and just uh, just the the work-life balance and the whole like we treat people well thing is like really just backed up so strongly the way that I originally heard of ThoughtBot is you speaking at conferences, I think. Like mm-hmm. that was like a big part of it is 
check out this awesome talk that this guy's doing. He's from Thoughtbot. I wonder. And it's like, it's not like you're like, I'm at Thoughtbot and that's all you talk about the whole time. It's like you quickly mention it and then I like want to learn more about Thoughtbot. Totally. I mean, that's our, that, this is our like not at all secret marketing strategy, which mm-hmm. is we generally don't sponsor, sponsor conferences at all um, because we think the ROI isn't really there. But we're happy to take that, those same dollars and use it to send someone there that's going to speak. Um, and I think that actually works out really well because mm-hmm. like if I ignore like the sponsor slide and like let's let's take a moment and thank you know whoever blue bottle whatever github <laughs> for sponsoring the conference it's like yeah yeah whatever like I've been to like 20 github drink ups and like <laughs> the, the secret is out github is a thing I know yeah, about yeah, it yeah. Uh, I'm not sure it gets you any more like goodwill but when you speak somewhere and you kill it I'm like oh man like there are really smart people over at github and like that totally impacts me really deeply. And actually, I got a tweet uh, just the other day from someone uh, after I spoke at uh, uh, Future of Web Apps in Boston. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he said, you know, that was a really great talk. I really loved it. Now I want to work at ThoughtBot. And I was like, cool, email me. Totally. And like now we started an email thread about like what's going on and it's like it's the the secret the non-secret secret plan in action is working very well. That's the best. Mm-hmm. Your and your talks are pretty unique too. Like whenever I go to a conference I'm you are probably one of the speakers I'm most excited for because I'm not 100% sure what's going to happen. Usually <laughs> usually if I watch another talk I'm pretty like I can read the synopsis and I'm pretty sure I can almost predict the slides. Mm. But you don't even use slides That's when true. you present. It's it's usually either live coding or it's some kind of demonstration of something or or like um, one talk I saw was uh, like it, I think it was fact for developers. And that mm-hmm. was almost like a question and answer type thing. There wasn't it, there wasn't coding, but there wasn't slides. It was more like just interacting with with the people there. Is yeah. that, is that kind of your style? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it's I, I've said this a lot to the point where people are probably sick of it, but I think in general most talks would be improved a lot if you made people throw out their slides. I think slides are usually a crutch. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they are wonderful additional aids, like wonderful visual aids or things that you can only show on a screen that uh, you can't just talk about. Um, and some people put a ton of work into them. Like you, I, you, you gave a talk with slides that like you had like a thousand slides I had over with a thousand slides, crazy yeah. trends, and like, not in a bad way. Like yeah. here's like a thousand crappy slides, but like a, interesting transitions and like like create like it's, it was great. Uh, and it enhanced the talk. The talk was better because of it. Most talks, I think, are not better because they're usually worse because of. It. Uh, and it's it's a ch- it's a cheap way of getting notes that you can look at during the talk. And so, and I, I sort of have this analogy that I use, which is like, imagine we're all like painters, and you're going to go to a painting conference, and, and your your goal is to like become a better painter. So mm-hmm. there's a, some really great painters they've selected to give talks, and the painters set up get up on stage and they unveil ten finished paintings. And they're like, this paint, look, look at this painting I made. Like, it's a great example of how to like do, you know, use light. This is a great study of a, of a portrait. Uh, whereas if they got rid of all those paintings, instead painted for you and talked and said like, here's what I'm doing now. Here's why I chose this brush. Here's how I'm mixing the colors. You would pick up a lot more, I think. It's, it's a higher bandwidth transmission as well. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that you, I think it's like a better, it's a better way of teaching because it's more engaging, but I think it's also just there's more to see in the stream of what's going on. So I find pretty, pretty consistently that when I give talks or I write code live, people will comment on some of the things I did in Vim. They're like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. Or like, yeah. oh, wow, like it was, it was inspiring to see how fast you were at this refactoring in Vim. You maybe want to go learn how to do that. Um, and I'll often intentionally bump into things like, oh, by the way, you know, you can just do like, you know, this little thing right here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just there are a lot of things you can learn even that are um, 
tangential to your main point. Like I'm teaching you about refactoring, but along the way you realize like you could do this cool thing in Vim, you could do this cool thing in Bash, and and uh, you learn about the tools as well. Similar to pairing, where you're you're like obviously trying to complete a feature, but you go on this crazy tangent of like totally changing your editor, writing some macro, or doing something like that. Totally. Yeah. See, with slides, it's easy because you have a specific order that you're going to go through. You're right. able to run through the slides, but with something that's more interactive and you could go off on these tangents, how do you prepare for that? Are you just planning every possible tangent or are you just kind of playing it by ear while you're up there? I'm very much playing it by ear. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's And that's, I think, is another one of the, the... Well, it's hard, but it's a strength of, uh -huh. of non-slide-based talks is like you can take them to different places. So when I do live coding talks, like uh, I did a talk on refactoring and I would ask people like, what do you, what do you think of this? And people be like, ah, I would write that this way. And I'm like, oh, interesting. And so like, I would change it. And like, mm. now we're off on a different track. We've taken a branch. Yeah. And like, that is when I feel most alive. Like, that's when I, I really love that feeling of like, wow, the talk. And like, people do too. Like, people can tell that like, I'm on slide 42 of 67. And like, you're just walking down this thing. You've mm -hmm. rehearsed it 20 times, which is great. But now it's boring to you. And it's not surprising. But like, they know when like someone makes a live suggestion from the audience and you start doing it and talking about it, they're like, oh my God, like, this could fail, first of all. Uh -huh. And like, people worry about that so much. And they're always like, oh, like I would never do live coding. And it's like, yeah, you, but you should. Like, and I tweet about this the other day, but it's like most speakers are afraid of doing like live coding or live demos or more interactivity because they're afraid that they will mess up. And they should really be way more afraid that they'll be boring. Because that's the thing that kills, honestly, 80% of talks. I've seen so many conference talks. Mm -hmm. I was on the conference, uh, conference kick big time. And almost every talk, like the vast majority of talks are a little bit too boring, a little bit too not passionate, a little bit too dry, a little bit too stale. Uh, and almost every talk would be improved by like some excitement mm -hmm. and the risk of failure the fact that people know you might screw up it, it's infectious like oh god i'm gonna watch this guy because maybe it'll be a disaster it's like a magic show or a stunt show absolutely yeah, totally yeah totally exciting. there's yeah. suspense there yeah and people like suspense they want to be entertained during talks they don't just want to be informed like i think that's the, like the biggest mistake that so many people make they're like oh as long as i teach as long as i put out a bunch of information and don't say anything wrong i'll be okay because then no one will jump on me and tell me it's stupid yeah it's like, that's not what you that's not the goal there the goal should be attention. The goal should be maintain people to convince people to not look at their laptop. Uh -huh. Like that's my metric. Like I have like a couple of crazy metrics for my talks. One is like what percentage of people are still looking at me and like and when I lose people down to their laptops, like I'll stop the talk and like have everyone get up and stretch. Like I'm, I'm constantly monitoring the room and I want rapt attention. Like that's that's my goal. That's the real thing. And then like afterwards, uh, this is like my own crazy bar, but like I want someone to say that it was the best talk at the conference. Mm -hmm. Like if I, I feel disappointed in my own performance, if at least one person does not tweet like that was the best talk at the conference. <laughs> and I, it's a little crazy and like a little egotistical, but like that's kind of the level that I, I really I want to do every time I get up on stage. Yeah. It's a good goal. Yeah. You know, somebody's got to be the best. <laughs> so there, when I was at RubyConf Argentina, we were actually looking at the Twitter feed. Mm -hmm. And uh, some more things happen where the more engaging a talk, the least people are actually talking about the talk on yeah. Twitter. Like it's just dead silence. And then after the fact, people are like, oh, that was so good. That oh, was so yeah. good. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So it's, it's like a lot of times you see on Twitter this talk happening and you got to realize that the people that are tweeting about that are looking at their computer. They're not actually totally. listening to the talk. So totally. it's kind of it's kind of funny to think about. You could probably write an interesting uh, thing that scrapes uh, mentions uh -huh. and see like which talks were most engaged during the talk. Yeah. Like, like get, you, get a little metric for it. Uh -huh. Something uh -huh. else I can assess over. Um, so I think the first time I learned about you was on the, the um, podcast that you host uh -huh. um, on Giant Robots and then some talks. And then the first time I got to work with you was on our very first Codecation yep. where we started writing code. Yeah. And actually a month ago, I did an episode where I talked about nothing but these Codecations and that was episode 10. You can find it at healthyhacker.com slash 10. Plus. 
plug. <laughs> yeah, recursive. Yeah, recursive, recursive episode here. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed the most uh, when we started writing code together, we did a lot of pairing, but we also opened pull requests. Mm. And the feedback on the pull requests was exceptionally good, but in like an interesting way. I noticed usually when I get feedback, people are like, I really like what you did here. Maybe we can try this. Or I really like what you did here. Maybe we can try this. But you had specific terms for almost every change you want to make. And I, I even wrote down here some that I've I've seen you mention in the past. Okay. Code smells. Yeah. Okay. Law of Demeter, open close principle, context-free classes, feature envy, <laughs> parameter coupling, and extract temp to query. Wow. I, I I I think of this as your jargon Rolodex, your programming jargon Rolodex. Yeah. You know more of like these buckets of terms to kind of wrap up all these ideas. Where do you learn that from? Is that something new? I didn't invent any of them. Right. Um, so there's sort of a 80-20 here. 20% of that is my own reading. Mm-hmm. So I've read like Refactoring by Martin Fowler. I've read Clean Code. I've read Code Complete. Like I, I like programming books um, and I, I read a decent amount. And so there's a lot like extract, extract temp to query is the chap is like the official, you know, quote unquote official name of that refactoring in the refactoring book, which is kind of like the Bible for that. So like that's just like giving a name to a thing that you do anyway. And there's just like a handy reference to it. A lot of the other stuff I learned um, has been basically from ThoughtBotters mm. um, and in particular like Joe Ferris. So like I, I think Joe Ferris is ThoughtBot's secret weapon. He, like, he doesn't get a lot of he doesn't put himself out there a ton. Like he doesn't do a ton of talks, doesn't do a ton of like podcasts, things like that. I think he's just kind of quietly in the corner being a really kind of incredible programmer and an incredible sponge of terms like this. Yeah. So like I I got the, a lot of these because Joe calls them out in my pull requests. <laughs> and so I'm kind of like uh, recycling knowledge that I've picked up from him. I've found myself using using some of this now too, and I ha- and I get to explain them to people at GitHub because it's GitHub is very casual, and we don't have a lot of a lot. You know, I, I would never be writing parameter coupling or extract temp to query on a pull request. Yeah, but I've been tempted now to because it just it's it, it wraps up all these things. I don't need to explain what I'm talking about. Totally, just say like this is probably not a good idea because it's pretty nice. I think I try to make my feedback uh, really good, mm-hmm. uh, and to me, good feedback is feedback that teaches. So I'm intentionally using those terms and often linking to them as well, like linking to a Wikipedia page or whatever in in the comment because I want you to know, I want us to have a shared vocabulary. And then later I can just say, oh, this violates open close principle. And you're just like, oh yeah, all right, we'll fix that. Yeah. Uh, And so I think building a shared vocabulary, and that's just, that's stolen straight from ThoughtBot. Like we have a a pull review guidelines Mm -hmm. uh, file somewhere that we can link to. Mm -hmm. And uh, it talks about, you know, constructive criticism, helpful criticism, things like that. And like, so I, I'm just going right from that playbook, basically, which is if, if you know what I'm talking about when I say, you know, this thing, it's easier for me to communicate it to you. And then late, and later you will uh, make that change proactively, right? Mm-hmm. Like you'll, and I don't even need to, we won't need to talk about it again later. Do you have a checklist that you go through when you're doing a PR, like some kind of stuff you're looking for right off the top of your head or you just... Not really. Yeah. I do occasionally uh, use a couple like small tricks, which is... I will start by looking at the tests mm-hmm. because often uh, people will not refactor their tests. They don't keep them quite as clean as the production code. So they'll do like red, green refactor and they'll refactor the production code but not mm-hmm. refactor the tests. So often, and, and also when they review their own pull request, which everyone should do, like you should review your pull first before you submit it to somebody else or review your diff and then make a pull. That's how I usually do it. But people will often get down to the tests and they're like, eh, just because alphabetically it shows up last because S uh, spec or T for test yeah. or towards the end, people just kind of like skip over and they're like tired by that point. Like, ah, screw it. Let's submit it and see what happens. So I'll often start there just to, you know, go after that stuff because there's often low hanging fruit there. That's one trick. And another is I look at the diff stat mm-hmm. and any class that is uh, brand new, I like to jump to. 
because um, mostly uh, programming where it's like a couple st changes, small changes to other classes, and then like a couple brand new classes. And those are often have, uh, again, like they might get overlooked because it's brand new. Mm. So I'll sometimes jump to that. And also DB schema in Rails apps. I've caught stuff sneaking through in the schema um, like a million times. Oh, yeah. For me, I, I'm always checking no, no false on every single column. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a personal thing for me. Yeah, no false. So they like uh, the schema changed, but the migration didn't get checked in. Yeah. Uh, things like that. Or like they wrote an up, but they didn't write it down. Easy to forget for some reason. Yeah. When you're not, so when you're not writing code for thought, do you write code for ThoughtBot anymore? I, <laughs> I mean, I don't mean that in a bad <laughs> yeah, yeah, way. Yeah, I just yeah. mean like you, I, I noticed that you're that you focus a lot on the podcast and Upcase. What kind of are you are you writing code at ThoughtBot? I am not as not nearly as much as I used to. So mm -hmm. I used to just be I used to be a consultant, uh, and so my I was my time was built out as code writing. Yeah. Uh, but now my time is sort of more up to me, mm -hmm. uh, and it's a slightly different level where I'm trying to make a business succeed, and so I'm thinking about things that are not just programming. Uh, so I don't get to do as much as I used to. It's probably like a half four hours a week or something. Like I try to like block up a half a day or a whole day or sometimes a couple of days, and that's a great week. Yeah. Um. So it's less than it used to be. Uh. You're and and I've constantly weigh this because I really like programming, but like the podcast is really great and has been great for me personally and for Thoughtbot. And you know, like running Upcase as a business is a totally new skill set, which is really exciting. Yeah. So like I've I've decided that the trade off is worth it. Yeah. How do you practice coding then? Um, do you do you do coding after work? What do you read? Open source projects? Like I noticed you're into Closure recently. Where's that coming from? What are you looking at to get kind of mm. the inspiration? I like watching talks. Ah. I like watching good talks. Um, that's like one of my like veg out things mm -hmm. is kind of like to find an interesting Closure talk right now. And like I got really into Rich Hickey's talks and like Stuart Holloway's talks and there's some really smart people saying really interesting things and they're saying it in the context of Closure and I think that's kind of what got me. And I was already excited about Clojure because it's a Lisp, and but that like you can actually use it work because it runs the JVM and has yeah. good libraries and blah blah blah. So it's like a Lisp that's going to kind of finally succeed. Because I used to do some clo uh, common Lisp, but you know it's hard to find anywhere that would hire you for that. I don't practice uh, nearly as much as I used to. Like codecations for me are great because I actually get to do nothing but code, yeah, yeah. which is like really exciting. Uh -huh. And like I, I, you don't get in the zone when you're doing other things. Like I don't get into a podcast zone. I don't get into like a giving one on one zone <laughs> or like a l analyzing the revenue numbers zone. Like nothing gives you that like zone feeling, at least for me, except yeah. for like coding. And so when we go on codecation, like I love the focus and like the d elimination of distractions. And I'll write code for like 10 hours and be like totally enjoying the heck out of it. Mm, yeah. So let's get back to the Giant Robots podcast for one second. How are you finding guests for that show? Are these talks that you're watching, like speakers you want to talk to? Are they people you're following on Twitter? It's a mix. We actually have a Trello board for it um, where anybody at ThoughtBot can contribute ideas, oh. which is pretty cool because we... There's a fair amount of guests that I've never heard of mm -hmm. that someone else put on there because they think they're interesting. And so those are fun for me because I get to get exposed to a new person and like Google them and be like, oh, okay, they're the founder of this weird thing over here. Uh, some of them are from my own personal you know, list of people I think are cool. The talks is a big thing. Like if, if you have a video out there of you giving a really interesting talk and I come across it, like I definitely will put you on the list. And we just kind of reach out to people and see who we can get. Do you record those over... This is more like Geek Talk because I obviously enjoy podcasting. Yeah, yeah. Do you do a lot of the interviews over Skype or do you... Yes. Um, okay. And do, do you have like a studio at ThoughtBot you use too sometimes? We do. Uh, we're, we decided to take like production pretty seriously mm -hmm. uh, pretty early on. We decided that one of the things we were going to care a lot about on uh, the podcast uh, and the other stuff we produced was quality, like audio quality, video quality, things like that. So we... Because we had a, a sound engineer... That, or a programmer who was a former sound engineer who mm -hmm. was handling like the production and 
uh, we decided to like rent a space in our same building and dedicate it and turn it into a studio. So we shoot videos there for Upcase, and we also record the podcast there. And it has you know sound insulation and nice mics and good equipment and all that. So when you record a podcast episode, how many people touch that? That's a, uh, that's a good question. It's actually not that many. So we, I have a super wonder producer, uh-huh. um, Tom Obarski, uh, has been doing it for us. And he is awesome. He handles pretty much everything. So he will schedule the guests and set up the interview and handles all the you know recording during and the editing after and the publishing and the show notes. And uh, so it's really just like he and I basically touch it. Um, and I do the easy part and he does all the hard, interesting parts. Mm. It's embarrassing. Like I, when I am in charge, when, when he's like out of town and I have to like hit the record <laughs> yeah. button, I feel like such an idiot. It's, it's shocking like how quickly I've or how thoroughly I've given up any knowledge of how to do this correctly. Yeah. It's just like I'm totally, totally reliant on him. Dele- delegation. Yeah. You know, like let this expert handle this thing. Yeah. And it, yeah, I'm pretty happy to do that. Yeah. It's like he does it really well and cares a lot about it. And so it's like, yeah, you definitely should be doing this. There's so much stuff to learn and it's, it's like programming where everybody has own their own opinion too mm-hmm. like what kind of mic to use you know what kind of speakers to use what kind of audio editing software to use mm-hmm. where to set the levels all that stuff yeah um, pretty complicated stuff the podcast has been really interesting for us like i don't think anybody knew how big it was going to be it mm-hmm. ended up being like a fairly large marketing win for us basically it, almost every every programmer i've mentioned podcasting to if they listen to a podcast they listen to the thought Bob podcast That's it's awesome. like yeah That's everybody so cool. knows it I, I wasn't expecting that at all when i when we agreed to do it like when we started doing it i don't know why i didn't think that i just didn't I didn't, I didn't anticipate that it would be a success uh, like it has been. Uh, and we've actually expanded into additional podcasts. Like So we've had been running an iOS podcast called Build Phase for mm-hmm. a while now, probably at least over a year. And uh, we just started a new podcast uh, today. It, episode first episode hit today. It was called The Bike Shed. I saw that. <laughs> so like <laughs> giant robots started off talking about programming um, back when I used to program. Yeah. So like for a while it was like really like we. I think our first episode was about the law of Demeter, Demeter, whatever. Um, so like it, it, with our CTO Joe, and so it was like it started off really hardcore code, and like people were like this is awesome. And then like I started writing less code and getting more interested in entrepreneurship and closure and other things. And so like the guests got a little bit more like co-founder of whatever. Uh, and like interesting closure guy over here uh, or closure gal and it's like okay cool uh, people still like this but it's different people yeah and so people still want the technical thing yeah and there were people that thought about they really wanted to do it so we just uh, actually released a new podcast that is actually technically focused uh, hosted by um, Derek Pryor and Sean Griffin uh, two other thought botters that are better at talking about programming than I am likely uh, so if you're tired of my entrepreneurial Ben is interested in random things and has random guests on podcast, you can go listen to this like more purely technical thing. Cool. And I'm, I'm looking at it right now. It looks like it's uh first episode. It's talking about Sandy Metz rules, which is funny. Cause like, I think I remember hearing Sandy Metz being interviewed on the Ruby rogues uh-huh. and the set of rules she came up for, I think it's for like detecting code smells, things you should look out for. Like you should mm-hmm. never break, never in quotes. Yeah, it, it was kind of like something she just came up with on the spot. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like something she's thought about for a long time. It was just kind of like, ah, oh, I guess this makes sense yep. based on the experience I've had. So I, I'm interested to hear hear what they say about that. It's yeah. So that I can I think I think I know what they are. She she basically said you should don't violate these rules. Uh, no classes over a hundred lines. Mm-hmm. No methods over five lines. I believe. Mm. Um, don't pass more than one instance variable from a controller to a view. And um, there's a number. There's another one in there too. Yeah, can't remember the last one. But we'll, we'll put a link. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny if you Google Sandy Metz's rules. I'm almost positive our blog post where we talk about trying <laughs> Sandy Metz's rules is the first result. Um, and I think they're really good rules of thumb. Like there are very few rules in programming that that like are like rules with a capital R. Like always do this. Yeah. Uh, but as like a general 
I like them as as like simple ideas and simple like filters you can apply to your code and say like should this class really be over 100 lines like sometimes maybe yeah sure you can maybe make that argument yeah um, but you should it should set off warning bells for you yeah so outside of the podcast and doing talks mm-hmm. uh, what else do you do I noticed that when we have been walking together to get food on our codecations or even now here in Portland you are constantly constantly humming yes <laughs> like yeah. constantly yeah it's, i notice it every single time it's a weird yeah it's a weird obsession uh or a weird like tick almost now uh-huh. where like i almost always have like a melody or something playing mm-hmm. in my head um and that's because i sing a lot so i sing in a barbershop uh quartet mm-hmm. with my brother and two other guys and i have for three years now actually and I've been, i mean i've been singing all my life but the barbershop thing is new and so barbershop is like four part acapella harmony it's an old style it started in like the 40s or so and it's kind of like this it's kind of like this weird acapella cult uh, where it's like a it's not a ton of people doing it it's like 30,000 people in the whole country that mm-hmm. do it and it shrinks every year yeah um, but <laughs> as the older people die off yes quite yeah. literally quite yeah. literally it's like the new people showing up are like eh, sometimes young but usually not that young yeah and uh, it's it's bleeding people from <laughs> natural causes you could say um, but it's awesome it's super fun like it's amazing how uh full and rich a chord and a sound you can make with just four voices and i, I think if you're like a certain kind of person you, and you, that just like hits you and you're just like hooked on kind of instantly that's it seems like kind of the same performance aspect too like that i see in your talks <laughs> it's very it's a very like when i watch barbershop it's it's much more than singing it's oh, yeah. like it's very animated and people are acting and moving together and mm-hmm. like almost like a like a musical kind of thing you know yep. so it seems similar for sure and in fact so up until not too long ago i was uh, the assistant director of a chorus a barbershop chorus mm-hmm. so it's you know still four parts but there's more people on you know a part than just one and it was really interesting to me to see how my talks and my time in front of the chorus uh, influenced each other so like I, there's tricks that you can use in front of groups of people to get them to pay attention to you. And there's like sort of just general principles that you can apply when you're in front of a group to hold their attention, to be entertaining, to achieve the, uh, the goals you want, to get them on your side. Like there's a bunch of things that I had, I just sort of have learned mm-hmm. because I would be in front of a chorus every week that when I jump in front of people, another group, even though it's larger, it's still the, the same principles apply. Yeah. Uh, and I think part of it is just this like expectation of uh, not obedience, but participation, I guess you get a lot of respect by expecting respect, I think. So I'd walk in front of the chorus and just expect no one's going to talk. Everyone's going to do what I say, even if it's a kind of a crazy suggestion. Mm-hmm. And like, they're going to trust that I have a vision for where we're going and that like these crazy things we're going to pay off and get them there. And I expect the same in a talk. <laughs> like I'll request, I'll have people stand up and stretch and they're like, what? Yeah. But I just have this look on my face, which is like, you're going to do it. Yeah. No one ever doesn't <laughs> do it. Like I say, oh, would everyone stand please? And everyone stands. Yeah. And I say, like, let's all do this and stretch this way. And they all do it. It's and almost weird not to, if everyone else is doing it. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And so I just sort of, I, yeah, they've, they've influenced each other a lot. I think both have sort of, they've made each other stronger. So how'd you, you've only been doing it for three years. How did you go to start directing a large choir then? Uh, I worked my way up. Nice. Uh, so I joined the, an existing course at the time. It was like 30 something people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I sang in there for a few weeks and auditioned and got in as just like sort of normal guy on the risers. And then uh, not that long after uh, the bass section leader quit. And so I got promoted into bass section leader, which is kind of like team lead, I guess, mm-hmm. for a, a voice part uh, and cut my teeth on that, which was really interesting. And then after not that long, maybe six months of that, uh, I went to the director and I was like, what would you think of me assistant directing? And he was like, yeah, okay. 
Uh, so I, or I was fortunate enough to be working in a chorus with a director who was like very non-territorial, like definitely trying to like cultivate talent, oh, that's awesome. which is an amazing, amazing uh, habit for any sort of leader to have, yeah. which is like not defensive and wanting to give people who are motivated uh, a, a means to express that motivation. Mm. So he saw that I was passionate about this and had a lot of like training in this and history in this and was like, yeah, take the reins. Like, t- okay, you were in charge of these 12 people. Okay, now you're in charge of the 50 people. And that was a huge part, a part of why like, I enjoyed it and stayed for so long was because I was, he was giving me room to grow. Cool. Well, we're going to try, uh, what do you think about teaching me a little, uh, what, what, is it, what are they called? Like tags? So it's called, a t- so I'll give you some backstory. So okay. there is, so Barbershop is, is kind of culty and, yeah. and like most cults, it has some uh, like traditions. And one of the biggest traditions in Barbershop is you sing the last few measures, the last handful of seconds of songs because every barbershop song ends in a satisfying way. Mm. Um, it's, it's So like musical types will call it a coda. Um, there's like a satisfying musical theory-based resolution where everything returns to one. Like it returns to like that, ba- that basic chord. So and, and basically like 99.9% of barbershop songs end in this way. Um, but the trick is kind of like they'll like flirt with resolving uh-huh. and hold you in tension and hold you in tension <laughs> and then it resolves and the song's <laughs> over and it's like, ah, oh, yeah. And, and everyone you, goes, barbershop. And even non-musical people can sense this. Like, totally. There's like, there's, there's like a sound, it's a specific sound only to barbershop with this like extreme tension, tension, tension and then Ah, uh, we've reached the end. Totally. Yeah. So barbershoppers are people through self-selection who are addicted to this feeling. Uh, and so uh, it's a common tradition at any time, any event where a bunch of barbershoppers gather to sing tags. Mm. So tag is the name for this, like that last snippet of a song. And uh, people will do this until the early morn. So the last, uh, the last uh, convention I went to, which is like a, it was like a competition, a local competition, I was up until like three in the morning just forming pickup quartets with people. Sometimes uh-huh. I would know them, sometimes I wouldn't, and we would sing tags because there's sort of a canon of tags that a lot of people know. Or I'll teach them on the fly. Like teach someone by ear, here's your part, sing this, okay, uh-huh. here's your part, here's your part. Okay, now we'll all sing it together. Wow, it sounds really good. Uh, so I'm going to teach you a tag uh, offline. So we'll, when we come, we'll come back and you'll you'll know it already. <laughs> okay. And then we'll try singing it. I think we should probably do like I'll do two parts, you do two parts, or something. Yeah, like that. we'll mix it together and see how it sounds. Awesome. We'll play it right at the end. Yeah. So uh, as we as we get out of here, you can hear what uh, what barbershop is. And if you're if this if you hear this tag and you're like, oh my god, I want to do this. Mm. A, I don't blame you because it's super fun. And B, you should go Google. Like look for like barbershop chorus. You know your your town name. Because uh, that's a really good way to get into barbershop is find a local chorus, go visit them and be like, hey, I want to sing tags. And they'll be like, oh my gosh, this is a new cult member who yeah. is already sort of exposed to like part of our like our most effective pitch. Totally welcome you in. And oh God, yeah. yeah. You almost won't find a nicer group of people. Like mm. it's like like most cults is very welcoming to newcomers, but just it, it is, it's a really friendly group. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing our tag. Yeah, me too. <laughs> we we have for today folks you can find the show notes for this week's episode at healthyhacker.com slash 15 and if you have any questions that you want to share on the show please send me a voicemail at healthyhacker.com slash voicemail 